1 Peter 4, verse 17. And let's start by reading verses 17 through 19. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God should entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. In 2005, a book was published titled Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And in the book, the the authors coined the term moralistic therapeutic deism to describe what they called, quote, the dominant religion among contemporary American teenagers. And I would add, uh, the majority of smaller children who have been active in Sunday schools of uh, most American churches. Now, in your bulletin or attached to your notes here, you're going to see the article I'm referencing about this book, um, and we'll go to that later. But uh, basically, moralistic therapeutic deism teaches that God wants people to be nice, and he wants us to be happy, hap, hap, happy, happy all the time. And the way you set up the system is if uh, Carol Wanzer is nice, then only happy things will happen uh, to her. And uh, God will love us because we're nice, and he will bless us and let us have a nice life. And he's going to make sure we're happy. And that's kind of the way it's all set up. And that's a problem. Last time we talked about what's the problem. Uh, because moralistic therapeutic deism isn't true. It isn't biblical. It doesn't work. And it marginalizes the gospel. I mean, you end up with people who think the whole plan of God revolves around their personal happiness and the Great Commission. And I'd be all for that. If it worked for me, but just for the, just so you'll know, you know, it's my sin nature. I'd love for the plan to revolve around me. But we end up with a gospel that, a great commission that says, uh, go into all the world and be nice. And then good things will happen to you and God will love you. But instead, the great commission is go into all the world and preach the gospel. And the gospel is inherently offensive to Homo sapiens because you've got to admit, A, you're a sinner. B, you can't fix it, and C, Jesus Christ is the only one who can. And that's a lot bigger than just behavior modification. And if you'll think about the original readers of 1 Peter, we're very well invested now in the book of 1 Peter. Um, these people were nice. I'm sure they were very nice people. But uh, they're in the midst of a cauldron of suffering, and it's not... Uh, in spite of their faith, it's because of their faith. Um, and if you had tried to convince them that God just wanted them to be nice and not offensive to the world, and then God would make them happy, uh, after they stopped laughing, they'd probably start crying, you know? So, you know, the problem is, if that's true, the whole book of First Peter doesn't make sense. And certainly, this title I've chosen for our passage this morning, Successful Suffering, Successful Suffering, by definition, uh, is uh, not a, not legitimate, right? If that whole premise that God wants you to be nice so you can be happy and nothing bad will happen to you until you're at least 99 uh, years old or something like that. So uh, for those of us who have been in the book of First Peter, we can punt that myth away that God's program and purpose is that nice people will never face any serious suffering on earth. And we can realize God gives us resources to handle the suffering, and he uh, filters the suffering that he permits to come our way to produce actually greater goods. And uh, everything always works out in the end, even if that end point is after your funeral. That's uh, We've got a God who's 
you ain't seen nothing yet with God's purpose through the whole span of your life because we worship a resurrected Savior. So anyway, this is kind of tough sledding here. This is not uh, hap, hap, happy kind of teaching today. And most of this book of 1 Peter is pretty pretty tough stuff. So let's buckle our spiritual seat belts, make sure our tray table is in its upright and locked position, and let's pray for uh, our teachability of God's Word. And we want to pray for our military, our peace officers, our firefighters. Now, Carolyn, uh, we've got a new new picture on our collage this morning. Tell, tell everybody who that man is. Yeah, that's Greg. Greg in California, we pray a lot for. This is Harrison, his son, and he's uh, going to be a new recruit. And I hear that boot camp's a lot of laughs, so I'm sure uh, that's going to be uh, a purging time for him. And, uh, you know, we just passed the anniversary of, of that tragedy in Baton Rouge, Red Stick. And then we pray for our uh, firefighters also. So, uh, Mike, if you would uh, pray for us in that direction. Well, you know, before we dive into our Bible study, we'd like to uh, do something to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking. And so we got two cartoons that prove that TBF is on the cutting edge of ministry. Uh, this is uh, Dale recently talking to me, and he said, we need to reach a younger demographic, use an illustration about that lady goo-goo person. <laughs> and then finally, we got the pastor, old Pastor Brad up there. Um, remember next Sunday, the first 50 families to enter the sanctuary will receive a free Pastor Brad McCoy bobblehead. Why haven't we thought about that before? Successful suffering. How in the world could suffering be a success? We don't want to suffer. Do we? I don't think we should seek suffering, but it will find us as fallen creatures in a finite physical world. And we've talked about categories of suffering. We'll talk about those again today. But uh, yeah, our passage talks about uh, successful suffering. What is successful suffering? Um, Well, let me define suffering, uh, successful suffering, as taking place when believers in Jesus Christ keep on trusting and obeying the Lord, even when there doesn't seem in our little brains to be any earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. And to do that demands that believers, I mean, uh, uh, Clay Ward and Phyllis Davis and Savannah Bowers, the man that believers in Christ who trusted him for eternal life and the forgiveness of sins look at our problems now. We don't deny them. We don't pretend like they're not there with both the present and the future in mind. That's what the passage basically is saying when you boil it down. Now this goes back to the top or the purpose statement for the whole book. We've stressed this a lot through this study, but Peter puts his basic theme statement right in the middle of his text, chapter 2, 11 through 12. And this is a paraphrase of that. As spiritual aliens and short-timers on earth, even if we only live to be 100 years, that's a short period of time compared to eternity, Christians, Dr. Wolfgang Dieg or Janice Skinner, should not be controlled by our emotions or our feelings, but we should consistently live our faith centered on our Lord Jesus Christ, even on uh, prom night, even on business trips, even when you've got tragedy in your life, even when you've got great success in your life, and you might tend to want to think that God's just an accessory, not the axis of your life. So that unbelievers who may slander us because of our faith will see the reality of Christ in our lives and ultimately glorify God by coming to him in faith. So God does not uh, promote evil, but he providentially uses even evil and evil suffering in our lives to produce greater goods. And because this is tough truth, I'm calling the first two verses tough truth one today and the uh, verse 19 tough truth two. So let's look at tough truth one. Look at verse 17 and 18 again. For it's time for, for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. Then he quotes from Proverbs 11, and if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man 
in the center. Um, it's time. Go back to verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. The church age we live in is between the first and second coming of Christ, and it's as if uh, time in God's mind is on a precipice like of a huge waterfall, and at any moment the world can fall into that precipice uh, of the tribulation when he takes the church out, and that's an imminent event. It could happen at any moment. It was overhanging, impending in the first century. It continues to be imminent in the 21st century. We've got to be at least 2,000 years closer than Peter was. And when you realize who's got nuclear bombs now, it can't be very far away. So we're in a very strategic moment in uh, the uh, divine program for history between the first and second advent. And during that time, the church will face judgment. This isn't God judging the church, although he uses and he redeems the difficulties that come to his church. Uh, the word in the original Greek here is... Uh, Related to the root from where we get the word crisis. And I'm not sure what your definition of crisis is, but you know what I'm talking about. Testing, pressure. It's time for testing, crisis, pressure to begin with the household of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, context is everything, right? Blanche, whether you're doing precept Bible studies or women of Tanglewood Bible studies or Dallas Seminary Bible studies, doesn't matter. So we're looking at verse 17. But that's part of a paragraph that starts in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised, Sharon, when bad things happen to good people, even you. At the fiery ordeal, time for testing, crisis, pressure to come on the people of God so the world can see the difference, see what's really in us. Uh, Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, not to fail us, but so that people can see what we really are as though some strange thing were happening, as if it was out of God's control or program. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, not redemptive sufferings, but sufferings for the same reasons, for identification with God's program and righteousness, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with extra exaltation. The tougher the battle, the more glorious the victory. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because somebody actually noticed you're different than the world. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you clearly because people have noticed you're different. But make sure you don't have bad suffering in your life, suffering because you're doing bad, naughty things. Uh, don't suffer as a murderer, a thief, evildoer, troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian for righteousness, he's not to be disappointed or ashamed or give up, but he's to glorify God in that name. For it's time for judgment, for crisis, for testing. It's the same theme. Over and over. Uh, I've learned as a teacher that repetition is the mother of retention. It was just, Phil's an athlete, we're just talking about, uh, there's an old saying that practice makes perfect. That's not right. Practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. Perfect practice makes perfect. Uh, One season I was in my golfing career, I hit into a, a tarp thingy. Uh, in the garage in Birmingham, Alabama, and I was in it so solid all winter, and I thought, man, I'm going to be good now, you know. First time the weather gets good, move the snow away from the tee, tee it up, hit it so solid, and slice it about 80 yards to the right. I've been practicing my over-the-top move, and I had ingrained it, you know, still working on that. So, uh, yeah, uh, practice doesn't make perfect, it makes permanent. It's time for judgment. It's time for crisis, testing, pressure, so the world can see what we're really made of. Uh, to come to the household of God, we're not exempt. This uh, moralistic, therapeutic deism isn't true. It's a myth. It's a pipe dream. It doesn't work. It's time for judgment to begin with real believers. Uh, and the judgment here, of course, when you see the word judgment, you think of eternal condemnation. That's not what we're talking about. I think you'll know that. Let's go back to Romans. Um, and I got eight one first, but I kind of like to do them in numerical order. So let's, that's just me. So let's do Romans 5.1. Uh, you know, as you take calculus, you're never going to be told that one plus one doesn't equal two or that you can multiply by zero. You know, the stuff you learn early still applies when you get more uh, detailed. And if I can remember what Romans is. 
which is hard under pressure, you know. Uh, Romans 5, 1, Therefore, having been, as past tense salvation, forgiven from the penalty of sin, uh, our sins imputed to Christ and judged his righteousness imputed to the sinner who trusts in Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith in Christ, because he died for our sins and rose again, we have peace with God. Keep that in mind, Danny. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Therefore, consistent with 5.1, there is now no condemnation, nada, zero. Julie, zero condemnation between you and your Heavenly Father because of your faith in Christ. You didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it, but that's called grace, right? Unmerited favor. So go back to First Peter. We're not talking about uh, salvific condemnation, but a purging, a testing, a crisis, a pressure that uh, is designed to bring out our true priorities and purpose uh, as you uh, work your muscles against uh, resistance. They actually get stronger and people can see them. You might think of it this way. The world kind of judges the church now, and God will sanctify that for us as individuals. But in the end, the Lord of the church will judge the world. It's all going to work out in the end. But we're just in the middle right now. So, uh, in a nutshell, in the now, because of our identification with Christ, uh, we are going to be targets for good suffering. And our faith in Christ, our identification with him in the world, doesn't eliminate bad suffering or inevitable suffering. What are those categories, Brad? Well, bad suffering is suffering that comes to you because you did something bad. If you're mean and nasty and crude to your spouse, that's going to affect the quality of that relationship. If you show up late and uh, slopping around at work and maybe doing Bible study when you're supposed to be in one of your group, working groups, because you're not prepared for your uh, working group, and you're not prepared for your Bible study either, which is why you're cramming your Bible study when you're, they're paying you to actually do something else. Make sure none of you suffer as a murderer, so on. That'd be bad suffering. Uh, we're not exempt from that as believers. We're also not exempt from inevitable suffering. That's the third one there on that uh, uh, slide. Uh, Psalm 73, verse 26 says, My flesh and my heart will fail. That's one of those Bible promises nobody wants to claim. First uh, Peter 1, 27 says, All flesh is like grass, the grass that grows in your yard. And it's glory like the flower of grass. Here today, gone tomorrow. Uh, some of us are losing our hairline, our hearing, our seeing, and our good looks. And this can happen to you if you live long enough. But a good suffering is when we suffer for doing the right thing, but we choose to pay that price to keep doing the right thing anyway. And in uh, uh, chapter 4, chapter 3, actually, 17, he says, It's better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing the right thing rather than doing what's wrong and avoid that suffering. Okay, you got to decide where the lines are drawn on some of these things, but there's some things we cannot retreat on relative to Christian morals or doctrine, and if that becomes hate speech or doesn't just marginalize us, it criminalizes us, that's the price we must pay. Right? So, tough truth one, the believer's identification with Christ not only brings good suffering, uh, it doesn't eliminate bad or inevitable suffering. Now, the flip side of that is the believer's identification with Christ in eternity will bring direct fellowship with him for all eternity and an end of all suffering for all eternity. Is that sweet or what? In eternity, our identification with Christ will bring direct fellowship with him. Death death is not extinction. It's separation. Spiritual death is separation relationally from God Physical death is the separation of your soul, your consciousness from your body. And for a believer, Anthony Foreman, put your name in the blank, 2 Corinthians uh, 5, uh, 6 through 8 says, uh, death for the believer is to be absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. And we've been justified by faith, so we have peace with God and we're facing no condemnation. All because of Christ, to Christ. Be the glory. Christ is enough for me. I'd write a song about that. It'd be, be a good thing, right? Uh, if it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless and the sinner? Now, boy, you could rip that phrase out and read salvation by good works into that can all day long. 
it's with difficulty that the righteous people earn their salvation by being righteous and nice, right? That's not saying that salvation, past tense salvation, the forgiveness from the penalty of sin when we trust Christ, is difficult to obtain because we got to earn it because it's based on our merit or our good works. It's saying that the process of present tense salvation, being saved from the power and presence of sin in this world, is difficult because in addition to bad suffering and inevitable suffering, we've got to deal with good suffering too. We've got a whole category of suffering the world by and large doesn't deal with. But our Savior talks to that. Look at Matthew 5. You guys know Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. And the last of the Beatitudes, the blessed are statements that start this message, has the Lord saying this, Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in a sense, every Christian is part of a misunderstood, persecuted minority group. Some of us have much easier persecutions than people who live in Sudan or Indochina or in uh, North Korea. But we're all seen as, as pretty as weirdos out there by the cool kids. Blessed are you, and this is one step beyond just basic marginalization. Blessed are you when people insult you personally, persecute you specifically, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You realize the first century church, uh, the late first century church, and in the second century until the fourth century, the Roman Empire said we were illegal, right, Lendl? And you know what the charges were? Atheism and incest were the major charges against the early church. That's why they would uh, execute us. Now, uh, atheism, how could they accuse us of being atheists? How could they accuse a Christian of being an atheist? We didn't believe in their false gods, Phil. We didn't believe in their gods. And we certainly didn't believe the emperor was God or the government was God. And that was a capital crime. Incest. They were hearing about this thing we did. We call it communion. Uh, you know, uh, brothers and sisters are kissing one another. That's a holy kiss. Around here, we just kind of do the pastoral side hug, just so you'll know. Uh, and for Ken, there's no kissing, Ken, between you and me. Maybe just a, a warm handshake. But it says greet one another with a holy kiss. But some of those things, I think, are culturally mandated. I mean, you got to use an appropriate thing. When I left Jordan the first time after teaching there, my uh, one of my American colleagues said, hey, tomorrow when you leave, you're going to find out which one of the uh, Arab te- teachers, professors actually like you because when you say goodbye to them in their office, they'll get up and kiss you on both cheeks, so just be ready. And it was I'm glad you gave me a warning because I wasn't sure, you know, what was going on there for a minute. But, uh, yeah, so uh, people were lying about the early church. Uh, incest was because we were kissing our brothers and our sisters, and then uh, they heard about us. Cannibalism was also a charge that you can find in the like second, third century literature against Christians. They thought we were cannibals because they heard the Lord's Supper. This is my body. You know, this is my blood. Eat this. And so uh, uh, that has been fulfilled literally. Uh, Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As Jesus says in Jerusalem, which one of the prophets did you people not kill? You know, basically you killed all of them. So for me, the prophet, priest, and king is not surprising. You don't understand me, don't want me, and want to kill me. Go back to First Peter. If it's with difficulty, uh, through the difficult process of facing persecution, misunderstanding, marginalization, that we work our way through this world, what will become of the godless and the sinner? We're talking about believers as opposed to unbelievers, and the idea is if God allows Christians to have it hard in this fallen world, and oftentimes, in fact, not only do believers suffer, but unbelievers prosper amazingly in this fallen world, what will eternity be like for those who refuse to believe the gospel? Uh, notice the latter part of verse 17, those who do not obey the gospel, Lindley, to obey the gospel means to believe the call of the gospel. Called the gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So it's not talking about good works, but it's talking about believe the call, which is responding with active, receptive trust in Christ. 
And if God will permit that kind of stuff to happen to us, what's going to happen ultimately to the godless man and the sinner? Well, let's see what's going to happen to them. According to the Old Testament, Psalm 73. We're going to make Psalm 73 very familiar to you, I hope. It's been very, very important in my thinking for a long time. I love it a lot. And uh, long story short, uh, verse 1, the writer here, Asaph, says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. I learned that, not in Sunday school, but Sabbath school. They went to Sabbath school in the 10th century B.C. Uh, but as for me, just generally, God's good to his people. But I got problems. This isn't working for me, pragmatically. As for me, my feet have come close to stumbling. My steps have almost slipped. And I was envious of the arrogant and the unbelievers and the Moabites and the Hittites and the termites and all those ites that were out there that surrounded them. As I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now he's kind of overblowing kind of the issue, but he's saying sometimes not only bad things happen to good people, good things happen to bad people. He didn't like that. So he gets really upset at God for a while until, as he says in verse 17, uh, until I went to the sanctuary to worship, even though I was still kind of worshiping my worries. I'm going to worship God for a few minutes here. And then I perceived their end, the outcome of the guy who sells drugs for all his life or, uh, and never comes to faith and that kind of thing. Uh, surely you set them in slippery places. It kind of reminds me of what's going to become of the godless man and the sinner. The guy rejects the gospel. They're in a slippery place now. They're going to be cast down in destruction, destroyed in a moment, swept away with sudden terrors, like a nightmare uh, kind of scenario. Look at verse 27. Uh, For behold, those who are far from you will perish. 100%. No lawyer's going to get OJ off of this one. You've destroyed all those who are unfaithful, who refuse to believe in you, who do not obey the gospel. But look at the blessings for believers. I'm talking about Pam Cox and Gibson Lovett and Brad McCoy. Uh, sometimes we don't understand God. Sometimes we second guess God. But you gotta doubt your doubts in those moments when you feel like you're at the end of your rope. You tie a knot in faith and you hold on. And at one minute at a time. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, I was mad at you, God, because bad things happen to good people and good things tend to happen to bad people. I was like a dumb animal. Nevertheless, you're with me because you're holding on to me. I'm not holding on to you. And here's uh, Sonia told me this is her life verse after last week. With your counsel, you'll guide me. That's life on earth. Through the good suffering and the bad suffering and the inevitable suffering. And afterward, absent from the body, face to face of the Lord. Receive me to glory. Who have I in heaven but thee? Besides thee, I need nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart will fail. That's inevitable suffering. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion. That means everything I need forever. That's why you don't need to hook a U-Haul to your hearse. You won't need any of that stuff. But I would like to bring the softball trophies if we could. But uh, Behold, those who are far from you have perished. You've destroyed all those. But as for me as a believer, even on my worst day in this world, the nearness of God is my good. I have trusted in the Lord, made him my refuge. And my job is not to second-guess him, but to tell of his works. Go back to First Peter. Wow. This is a good, t- tough truth, too. It's tough because it's hard to entrust yourself to God when things are happening to you. You don't understand. You don't like it. Extremely perplexing and painful. It's much easier to doubt, pout, and drop out or second-guess. And I've been there. And uh, I know a lot of us uh, have been there. But he says, Therefore, in light of the first tough truth, those also who suffer according to the will of God, and all of your suffering is according to God's sovereign will or His providential will, should entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. Believers who suffer now according to the providential will of God, that's that, that's that ace, the ace in the deck, is Romans 8.28. And uh, you know, that's, I always say you've got to build a battleship of the soul so that when a big one hits, you can actually ride it, ride it out. And a big one for me is always Romans 8.28. What does it say? Anybody want to show us your memory of Scripture here? Ever, you know what? Yeah. 
All things work together for good. It doesn't say everything's good, right? But God is so smart, he figured out a way to make history with creatures making moral choices like a mosaic and even the black, sharp pieces that are ugly and painful if you lean against them fit into the big picture and make a beautiful picture when you see it from heaven's side of the uh, the mosaic. That's what he's getting there. So believers who suffer now, according to the providential will of God, are to entrust themselves. In the original Greek term, that's actually a financial term for depositing funds for self-keeping. And this is depositing kind of your spiritual uh, mindset to God for self-keeping. I call it give God the benefit of the doubt. You know, we always, we're Americans are fixers. We want to fix stuff. Uh, I mean, the Arabs are still mad about the Crusades. You know, we don't even know when the Crusades happened. You know, we don't care about the Crusades. So it's hard to kind of get somebody who wants to fix something today with people who are still mad about something that happened a thousand years ago. I mean, you got to find uh, common ground. It's very difficult. But we tend to want to think all the only possible solution to our prayer could be an immediate uh, end of whatever is bugging us or causing us pain. And, you know, God will permit whatever he permits as long as you need it. You know, and sometimes it's not. What did Paul decide about his thorn in the flesh, remember? He's praying about God removing the thorn in the flesh. He said, I prayed about it, and I realized it's not going away. <laughs> so i got to live with it. And then he learned something. My grace, God's grace is sufficient for you to hang in there without doubting, pouting, and dropping out. So believers who suffer now are to uh, deposit for self-keeping their souls. And when we see the word soul in English, we always think of the immaterial part of us that leaves the body and goes to be with the Lord. Uh, but that word suke, we get psychology from that word, can refer to the immaterial part of James Mitchell or Tommy Lovett. But sometimes it just refers to our lives or our life experience generally. And it depends on the context. Go back to Proverbs 13.3. And we're going to talk about this Greek word. Now, how in the world can you talk about a Greek word in the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, Brad? That, and fortunately, they're translated into English so we can actually read them. That's a good question. How can I do that, Michael? How can I make a point about the Greek word suke based on the Hebrew Old Testament? Well, I'm not referring to the Hebrew Old Testament. I'm referring to the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint. It goes back to 250 B.C. in the aftermath of the Babylonian return. So many uh, of the Jews spoke Greek. They needed a Greek translation. It's called the Septuagint. So when you look at that early Greek translation, which sometimes is quoted in the New Testament, it was commonly used, we read things like this, Proverbs 13.3. The one who guards his life preserves his nephesh in the Hebrew, suke in the Greek translation of the Hebrew. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. That's not talking about you're saved from hell by guarding your mouth. Okay. Maybe we should all wear mouth guards like they do in football. You know? uh, the one who guards his mouth preserves his suke, his life experience with his boss, his teachers, his coach, husbands, your wife. It's not what I say, it's how I say it that gets me in trouble. Am I, can I get a name in on the back row? Yeah. yeah. I don't cuss, I don't scream, I don't throw, I don't hit. But my tone can be so sarcastic, man. It's bad. It's nasty. It's bad. Uh, the one who guards his uh, suke, his uh, I mean, guards his mouth, preserves his suke, saves himself lots of trouble. You know, a uh, what a gentle answer turns away wrath kind of thing. <laughs> the one who opens wide his lips, the opposite of that comes to ruin. Look at the Proverbs sixteen seventeen. Now, Carol, we're making a point about the, the Greek word in uh, 1 Peter 4.19 that says, let those who suffer according to God's providential will uh, to entrust their souls. And we said that word suke sometimes refers to the immaterial part of you that will go to heaven when your body stops working. But quite often it also refers just generally to your life or your life experience. And... Proverbs 16, 17 says, The highway of the upright 
is just avoid going off-road with a uh, fancy sports car because you're going to rip off the oil pan and do other kinds of damage if you try to do that kind of travel with that kind of incredibly expensive and exquisite vehicle. The one who watches his way preserves his nephesh, Hebrew, suke, Greek, not his soul like he holds on to his salvation from hell, but preserves his life from the fallout of getting off the road. You know, I always think that God's moral teachings are like the lines on the highway. This is a free country. You can drive off the highway at 70 miles an hour if you want to, but good luck. You're not going to get very far, are you? You're going to have something happen. Flat tire, rip off the oil pan, rip off the transmission. Can you relate to the transmission there, Anthony? When do we get our new transmission? Got it? How's it going? So, got you to church. So that's a good thing. Let's look at one more. Let's look at a New Testament example. Let's look at Luke, our Lord teaching in Luke and healing in in Luke. Uh, Polymorphic words, the same word can can have different nuances of meaning. The word trunk can refer to the elephant's nose or a tree trunk or the trunk of a body or a telephone line or a a footlocker can be called a trunk, right, Chris? One word can use five different ways. And you don't need a dictionary to figure out what somebody means when they say trunk. You just go by the context, right? That's the way languages work, even the biblical languages. They all work like that. Look at 6-9, Luke 6-9. Now this is, he heals, uh, heals a guy uh, on the Sabbath, and they're going to say he's a bad guy because he did that. And Jesus said to them, this is Luke 6-9, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a suke... Or destroy it. He just preserved this guy's uh, right hand, which was withered. And we're not talking about soteriological salvation from hell here. We're talking about saving his life from this physical affliction kind of thing. So go back to First Peter 4.19. And I, had, I had real high hopes for that, but I think that was kind of like the golf illustration Wednesday night where I spent like 15 minutes talking about the plane of the golf swing. And it just didn't go over real well. So I'm st- I apologize for that. But uh, when you see the word soul, sometimes it just refers to the person. Uh, the, the Basically, the, the number one general order for all the soldiers in the army of God is keep on trusting, obeying the Lord, even when there's no reason, earthly speaking, you can think of to keep on trusting, obeying the Lord, because it's just possible. In fact, it's an absolute certainty God knows what he's doing. And it's all going to work out in the end. And that end may be beyond this life, but that's okay, because that's reality too. And to me... You know, that's, that's the tough truth. We're supposed to keep entrusting ourselves and keep walking with him even when we're pained or perplexed. It's not easy to do that. Uh, the flip side of that tough truth is that, as Romans 8.18 says, and I love this, for I consider that our present sufferings, and so Peter's executed upside down in Rome. He writes First and Second Peter. Paul, who wrote Romans, was beheaded in Rome. Uh, so these people have skin in the game, Right? These people have skin in the game. They're, they're participants, not just observers. I consider that our present sufferings for Peter and Paul included execution and imprisonment. I consider our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory. I just imagine the person suffering the worst kind of pain from some kind of horrible disease who's a believer in a nanosecond after their spirit leaves. They're with the Lord Jesus and they're going to be so ecstatically overjoyed to see him. And I think he's got a big smile on his face. Just welcome you, the most welcoming person you've ever had in your life. And for me, one of the most was Mrs. Williams, my third grade teacher. She was incredible, just incredible. Fell in love with her the first day. I'm still in love with her, you know. Uh, but, uh, and, you know, Jesus is going to evaluate the quality of our Christian life, and that's the judgment seat of Christ, and give or not give rewards and combination based on how we bore fruit. But uh, that's not going to come up at first. He's going to be act like he's actually happy to see us, and he will be. And uh, if you think of the most loving, accepting in a good way, not excusing your faults, human person you've ever had, I know around here you immediately think of me. I'm obviously that person in your life. But whoever that was or is, I hope you've got somebody that can come to mind. Uh, the Lord Jesus times infinity will be like that, and it's a precious, precious thing. Second Corinthians five six through nine says, "Therefore, always being of good courage, no matter what's happening to us." And boy, Scott and Nancy needs this one. 
Always be of good courage knowing that while we're at home in the body here, subject to inevitable suffering, good suffering, bad suffering, we're absent from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. So we don't always know exactly what's going on with God's program. We just keep on trusting and obeying anyway. We're of good courage, I say, and prefer to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Now, that's the New American standard, absent from the body and be at home with the Lord. The King James says, absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. And uh, uh, I always like, I prefer that, even though the Greek text doesn't exactly say that, but it's the same nuance, and it strikes a chord with me. Okay, we started this morning with MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism. God wants you hap, hap, happy. And that's a problem. And let me read this article, which I thought was brilliantly written. The term moralistic therapeutic deism, MTD was short, for short, has been tossed around the Christian blogosphere for a few years now, but what is it? Where did it come from? And why do we need to know it as a kid? She's, this is a little kid's ministry leader, uh, Karen Jones. I don't know her, found her on lifeway.com, and she's really a brilliant thinker. In 2005, Christian Smith and Melinda Lindquist Denton, released a book called Soul Searching, the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. In their book, the authors coined the term moralistic, therapeutic deism to describe the de facto dominant religion among contemporary American Christian, uh, contemporary American teenagers. MTD is a heretical system of thought that has infiltrated evangelicalism and Christianity as a whole. It is subtle and dangerous. Let's break it down. Moralistic, God wants us to behave. Therapeutic, God wants people to be happy and well-adjusted. Deism, God isn't constantly involved in the lives of people. Just when we want him, right? On the surface, MTD doesn't sound all that bad, right? Producing happy moral people sounds like a worthy goal. And it does sound like a worthy goal. But is this the kind of Christianity the Bible teaches? Did Christ die so we could be good and always have happy circumstances? Is that what it's all about, you know? Wrong Bible breath. Now, I always adapt some of these articles, so she didn't say that. I just put that in there. Uh, so don't write a nasty email to her. God wants far more from us and for us than good behavior and temporal happiness. I mean, if you give a parakeet certain types of shocks, psychologists do this, you can teach them how to dance. You know, you can teach them to do all kinds of stuff just by, you know, a behavior modification. That's not what Christianity is all about. Uh, it's much bigger than that. It's much better than that. Jesus came in the world to redeem the whole creation from the curse of sin. Well-behaved and well-adjusted people are not his goal. God's plan is complete and utter transformation, not just of humanity, but the whole creation. Um, when, and I would say how, did moralistic therapeutic deism replace biblical Christianity in kids' hearts and minds? When well-intentioned people started spending more time telling kids what they need to do instead of telling them what Jesus Christ has already done. That's the main thing, what Jesus has done. And then you can do the right thing because you want to, you're enabled to by the spirit that indwells you out of gratitude and little things like that. Uh, we've told kids they need to obey right away, otherwise bad things could happen to them, like being swallowed by a great fish, uh, like Jonah, we told kids they need to be brave like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace and God will protect them. So you'll never go to a fiery furnace if you just are nice. Uh, we forget to show, forgot to show kids that God, uh, and by the way, we made kids memorize the Ten Commandments, which I think is great, and told them to work hard to keep them. Uh, you know, uh, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight, but through the law comes the knowledge of Sin, say you flee to a savior, and after he transforms your heart, you can actually obey the Ten Commandments, but that's an effect, not a cause, right? Um, yeah. What's this? Yeah. We, uh, we forgot to show kids that God still used Jonah after he disobeyed, and an entire city, Nineveh, repented of their sin and turned to God. We neglect to point kids to the fourth figure in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who was like the Son of God. And we also forget to say, Carol, these guys didn't presume. When they get arrested for not bowing down, they say, they say you got to bow down. We're going we're gonna to burn you at Christmas. They say, we can't do that. We will not do that. Now, the God we serve, if he wants to, he can deliver us from the fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, they're not presuming that God's going to do it. 
They know he can. Can God cure cancer? Could we get a sonogram tomorrow and find out that uh, Baker has no heart issues? That could happen. Could you be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer one day and be told the next day it's not there anymore? Can that happen, Krista? That can happen. Does it happen every time? No, it doesn't happen every time. But it could, and we never seem to, kids never get that in Sunday school. Well, that's, that's complex. You have to warm up their capacity for abstract thinking. More cartoons, right? Um, we forgot to tell kids Jesus kept all the commandments perfectly for us before he did the work of redemption for us. Morals only go after behavior, behavior modification. The gospel goes to the root of the behavior by addressing the heart, the mind, and the will. For kids to be transformed, they need to know they're sinners. They're little depraved little boogers. You know, you have to tell them to say no or me or mine. Just go in the nursery some Sunday. You can see it. That parents don't train them to do that. They just do it. Uh, I hate to say this, even Cooper has a sin nature. They need to know that they're far from God relationally because of their imperfections. And they blame it on their parents, of course. Uh, but that in his love and grace, God took on human flesh to rescue them, teach them that Jesus Christ lived the perfect, sinless life for Jack Mitchell, that he could never live on his own, tell them how Jesus took the punishment for Jack's sins by dying on the cross as their substitute, Sure them that Jesus came back from the dead. I showing Cooper the Rubik's Cube two years ago, and it just blew his mind. He came back alive again. He came back alive again. This four-year-old kid, yeah, he came back alive again. He really got it. You know, he was dead. He came back alive again. I mean, you can't reproduce that in the laboratory. That really happened. Jesus rose from the dead, defeating sin and death forever, helped kids discover they're part of a kingdom through faith in Christ much bigger than the world can see. And God sees that all the time, even though we shrink him down. God wants more for your kids than moralistic, therapeutic deism. Give them the only thing that can transform their heart. Give them the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried and rose again on the third day, according to Scripture. Successful suffering demands believers look at our problems now with both the present, the now, which is very real and should not be denied, and the future, the not yet, in mind. You've got to look at both sides of the equation. I've got monocular vision, which means when I have both eyes open, I only look through my left eye. I did not know I had monocular vision until I was in my second year of dental school doing root canals that took should have taken 20 minutes and it took me like three hours and I got dangerously close to pulping a tooth, you know. And uh, once they discovered I had a problem, uh, they said, man, you need to go to law school. You got you can read, but you can't do uh, dentistry. And I said, I'm going to seminary. Uh, yeah, you got to look at both sides. I've always thought that if you don't look at both sides, the now and the not yet, you're, you're going to have breakdowns when certain things, they can be big, they can be small. I mean, one person's tragedy can be another person's no big deal. You know, it just depends. Uh, when, you, when your grandson is, has medical issues, that's big for anybody. But some of the stuff people have told me about, I thought, man, I wish I, I wish I had a problem that small in my life. But for them, it's a huge thing. Uh, but I've often thought if you look as a Christian at your issues, your life, and your problems just in the now, like God's got to fix it in five minutes, Phil, or you're going to be mad at him, that's just not fair because he's got a much bigger time horizon for what he's going to do. It'd be like looking at the cross without looking at the resurrection. You know, the, the gospel will not work without a resurrected Savior because a dead Savior cannot get you from Oklahoma to heaven. The resurrected Savior is the only one who can. So when you think about this principle that successful suffering, I would say probably the death of Christ is a really good example of successful suffering, right? And successful suffering involves both the cross and the resurrection. It involves both Friday and Sunday, both Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Um, the problem is, if you only see the present pain now, the physical reality now, uh, you're going to become pessimistic, hypersensitive, uh, doubt, pout, drop out kind of mentality. If you only see the not yet, so heavenly minded kind of thing, and usually you're young and haven't had a big one hit you yet, uh, you become Pollyanna, like nothing bad's going to happen to me because I got so much faith, and or insensitive to anybody who's really suffering because you're saying, well, they must have done something wrong, like Job's friends. We need to have binocular vision. We need to use both of our eyes together and get a fuller image of what's going on. And uh, if you forget how that works, just think about the uh, empty tomb. Let's have a word of prayer. 
Lord, this is tough truth that uh, quite often we're flying on instruments as we live the Christian life. We can't see the ground. We can't see around us beyond the, the crisis or the issue uh, or the pain or the perplexity. And you tell us to keep on entrusting ourselves to a faithful creator that's also going to be the faithful consummator um, and to keep on trusting and obeying and to hold on to that knot at the end of the rope. And I know not just Scott and Nancy, but a lot of us, uh, Trey and Julie and uh, just a lot of us who care for them so much are really hurting and, and, and frightened and concerned about uh, this next week. But you know, in many ways, Lord, we're thankful that all this stuff got noticed as opposed to everybody thinks everything's fine and then we have a horrible tragedy happen in, in a week or a month or five years from now that could have been dealt with. And we were just praying, Father, that the fact that the, the doctors have identified these issues and there are things they can do is really a blessing, a painful blessing in disguise. And we pray you would sanctify that knowledge and the procedures that they're going to be doing. And I pray that you would guide and direct their thinking process and certainly the actual physical uh, procedures and the things they're going to be doing for Baker. We pray you'd give that little soul a fighting spirit and that you might be pleased to sanctify uh, way beyond what the doctors can do to promote healing and renewal and uh, raise him up uh, just like you were so faithful to Sawyer uh, with his original uh, heart issue, that you might do the same thing for this family and for Baker, and we commit him to you. Uh, and, you know, as I'm sure a lot of us are dealing with certain issues and can readily think of something we've dealt with or are anticipating dealing with that would fall in this kind of area of seeing both the now and the not yet and trusting you when we don't see how the pieces fit together. And so help us to build that battleship of the soul that will let us kind of tie down on the fact that Christ is our Savior and tie down on the other side that we've got eternity to look forward to so we can really ride out uh, the storms that are coming. Uh, Forgive us for thinking uh, sometimes we're immune from these kind of things because our lives can change with a text or a phone call uh, and we're one heartbeat away from eternity. And that's a blessing and also kind of a curse because we kind of have plans, you know, Lord, sometimes. But sanctify that and empower us to apply this uh, principle. For the younger folks, for a teenager, hard to believe that anything bad could happen to him or her, uh, but uh, they're just as susceptible to all this as any of us. So make this really practical and speak to our hearts to apply this and empower us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.